You're listening to Better Fishing with Two Bald Biologists, sponsored by the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission. I'm Corey Oakley, the Assistant Chief of Fisheries Management for the Inland Fisheries Division. And I'm Ben Ricks, Coastal Region Fisheries Supervisor. We are fisheries biologists who are avid anglers. We want to link the work we do as biologists to your fishing. Our goal in this podcast is to use the information we have as an agency to help you catch more fish and learn about our state's great aquatic natural resources. Welcome back, everybody. It's the new year, and we're talking about a project or a species of fish that's near and dear to my heart in hybrid striped bass today. Ben's good to see you again. Yes, sir. Ready for the new year? I am. Well, that's good. That's good. Got a lot of good podcasts lined up for this year, I think. I'm excited about it. I think it's going to be a great lineup. We're still not going to cover everything, but we're going to hit some of our requests. Yes, we're going to hit some of our requests. Keep the questions coming in. We've had a lot of great responses from our public and and it's been really, really good. And we'll get the questions later on from people that have put their questions to us and we'll try to give a decent answer at the end of the podcast. But today we're going to talk about hybrid striped bass and we have a special guest today, Miss Kelsey Roberts. Kelsey, glad to have you here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I am the Piedmont Fisheries Research Coordinator for the Wildlife Resources Commission. And that's a probably large title for basically it just means I work with a bunch of different people and to identify the Piedmont's research needs for fish. And we conduct research projects and we work with anglers. We do outreach, kind of have a lot of different hats that I wear. Yes, you do. For yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah. Not one day is the same. Like today I get to be recording a podcast. So. Well, welcome. Glad to have you. Well, I'm excited to have Kelsey here. And part of the reason is because, you know, when Kelsey first started uh, cutting her teeth on fish in North Carolina, she started with me as a master's student helping with another project. And then at one point, she was one of my biologists. So that was really great. And now I get to see her in this role. It's just been fun to see how she's grown as a biologist over the years. And so I'm thrilled to have her on here. We have a lot of good stories, like the time I took her fishing. She'd never caught a striped bass before. And, you know, you can't be a Noose River biologist no. without catching a striped bass. you got to catch bass. at least one. That's, That's true. Right. So we went out there first thing in the morning after negotiating the start time heavily, <laughs> heavily. So sunrise was not her, not the option she chose? We may not have started as early as I suggested. This was before I had my child, so I was not an early riser. Right. I mean, she still got there plenty early, and we get out there, we're right there in Newburn, and I throw a topwater bait, and boom, catch a fish on like the very first cast. I hand it <laughs> off. She reels it in like a pro. We scoop it up. The fish hits the floor of the boat. And she looks straight at me and says, maybe we'll catch 30 today. That's the first <laughs> thing she says. And then I know what happened next. I don't even know the story, and I know what happened next. The hammer dropped, and you didn't catch another fish. We did not catch 30 that day. Yeah. We saw a lot of cool scenes, though. Got to know the river real good. <laughs> so I've known Kelsey maybe as long as you have, if not longer, there's Kelsey right there. Positivity. <laughs> Very optimistic. Very optimistic positivity. We didn't catch another fish, but we saw beautiful things. Threw right. a straight jinx down on us oh, when yeah. she did that. Oh, yeah. I've had that happen in my boat before and be like, oh, why'd you say that? I've learned. But we had a fun time. It was great. So Yeah. Well, yeah, I've known Kelsey a long time, and she's one of my favorite people. I can 
I probably shouldn't say that in the role I'm in now, but she's one of my favorite <laughs> people in the Wildlife Commission. So she's a great biologist and, and I'm glad she's on the podcast today. Thanks, guys. All right. Well, so tell us a little bit about hybrid striped bass. What are they? So hybrid striped bass are near and dear to my heart as well. And that's because they are crossed between striped bass and my favorite fish species, the white bass. Here in North Carolina, we cross female striped bass with male white bass. And we like them as managers because we can stock them in our Piedmont reservoirs and really any reservoir across the state. And they do a lot better than striped bass in some of our reservoirs. And so, you know, they grow really fast because of the striped bass genes, but they're able to tolerate some of those higher summer heats that we see from their white bass genes. And so they're kind of the best of both worlds. So you kind of answered one of my questions was why they do better. But my second question is if white bass are your first favorite fish, does that make hybrid striped bass your half first or second favorite fish? <laughs> is that your cousin once removed or your cousin twice removed? Right. Yeah, you know, they might be my second favorite fish. Okay. So Yeah. Just because of the Just white bass Just because I love influence. white bass. Gotcha. Yeah. Interesting. And I also think hybrids are pretty. Right. Yeah. So here's a question I have for you, because I get this question all the time. Okay. A lot of places, hybrids, striped bass, and striped bass coexist. And I get this question every day, all day long. Some people send me pictures. If I had a dollar for every time I heard this question, I'd probably be able to retire early. Is I caught a striper with broken lines. Is it a hybrid? Mm-hmm. So what's the answer? <laughs> no. It depends. Depends. <laughs> so most hybrids have broken lines. Yeah. But not all fish with broken lines are hybrids. That's true. You can have some. So there's plenty of striped bass out there with broken lines. So if you catch a fish, striper, hybrid-y looking, you know, and just because it has broken lines, that doesn't mean that it's a hybrid. But what are the traits that we can rely more on to say this is a hybrid? Yeah, there's definitely a size range when you get a striper that's kind of the the size of what a large hybrid would be. Sometimes they do look very similar. And I've even had a hard time sometimes when I'm out there. Sure. And they are hybrids. So genetically, some wonky stuff can happen, you know? Yeah, that's totally, totally possible. I would say the dead giveaway for me is, I've seen a lot of them in my day, though. And for me, in it's your like day, the I like, that. <laughs> like she's old. Had a lot of <laughs> please, days. Please, please. <laughs> would be the hump of the back of the fish from the dorsal spine to the head. The hybrids have a more pronounced hump, whereas the striped bass are more streamlined. Right. And then there's also differences in the tooth patch that they have, but even I have a hard time distinguishing between the tooth patches. Yeah. So my dead giveaway, and I've put my hands on more hybrids than I can count for sure. In his day. In my day. My dead giveaway, I agree with Kelsey, there's that hump, which means it's just a deeper bodied fish. It's taller. Mm -hmm. You know, the hybrid is taller than a striper and that striper's much more elongated. But the mouth and the face is my giveaway because the hybrid's got that really small mouth like a white bass. Yep. And the striper's going to have a much larger mouth. I mean, you can have a really large hybrid and it's going to have a tiny mouth. 
Right. I mean, and we'll talk about catching them and all that, and that'll be one thing I'll point out. But that tiny mouth is kind of the dead ringer. If you get a striper of any size, its jaw is huge. It, it has a big gape and beats much larger forage than a hybrid will. I think if you had two beside each other, you'd never question it. Yes, they're very easy. But in general, I think the smaller mouth is one of the things that I tend to notice. And also, it almost looks like a striper swam into a wall. Yep, crunched it down. That's a good way to look at it. That's kind of how I think about it when I'm trying to describe it to folks. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we actually get that question quite a bit when we're in the field and people see us and they're catching hybrids or catching stripers where they coexist. And you'll get that question a lot. I will tell you that I've seen a lot of anglers call a striper a hybrid just because of that broken line. Mm-hmm. They'll be like, oh, this is a hybrid. Look at the broken lines. I'm like, it isn't not even close to being a hybrid. I hate to break your heart, but that's a wrong identification. But I mean, it happens all the time. And it's, it's not easy. And it's in literature that we've handed out in the past. And again, while it's true, it doesn't mean that all broken lined. Yeah striper hybrid looking fish are hybrids. Yeah, and if you want to learn more about it, you can go to our Regs Digest. We actually have a, a pretty good diagram mm-hmm. of all those maroon species. The striper and the hybrid are in that group. That will kind of explain what to look for when you're looking for distinctions. So, Kelsey, you mentioned it, but I'd like to dive a little bit more into it. When is the right time to... We're talking about reservoirs right now. But when is the right time to stock a hybrid versus when is the right time to stock striped bass? And why do we choose hybrids in certain situations? Oh, I thought you were asking like what time of the, what uh, month do we stock them in? You can answer that if you want to. (laughs) Yeah. So one of the things we look at in habitat availability is just the depth of the reservoir. How hot does it get in the summertime? Striped bass, they can get big in reservoirs, but they, in the summertime, have really high metabolic needs. And they basically just have to be constantly consuming fish all summer in order to survive and grow. And so in some lakes, we put them in, it just gets too hot and they just can't keep up with all the energy that they're using. And so they, you know, they don't grow very big or they, they look really skinny and they're just not doing well. And that's when we would probably want to stock hybrids. So what, I guess, average summertime temperature do you think would be? And I know there's a gradient, and we probably even stock stripers in places where hybrids would do better. So hybrid striped bass have a, a higher thermal tolerance, and their optimal temperatures that they like to live in are probably, you know, all the way up to you know, 80 degrees, whereas striped bass in the summertime, they probably don't like to go much above 75. So they can tolerate it, but there has to be enough oxygen and there has to be enough food. So when you're in a reservoir that's not very productive and there's not a lot of, you know, as much bait fish as, say, a lake like Jordan Lake, they might not be able to do as well. So that'd be a good example. So Jordan versus like Lake Gaston. Lake yeah. Gaston has some deeper water where yeah. in the summertime, those fish can kind of escape the hotter temperatures, mm-hmm. you know. Striped bass do fairly well in Lake Gaston. However, Jordan not having a lot of really deep water, hybrid stripers are a better choice. Yeah. So we did stock striped bass in Jordan Lake for a really long time. And prior to that, we stocked hybrid striped bass. So we've kind of gone back and forward, but we 
constantly are monitoring these populations. And what we decided with Jordan was it was just like a hot bathtub, basically. And there was nowhere for the fish to go. We've had several fish die-offs and the fish were just skinny and not growing as well as they do in some of the other reservoirs. So we have since stopped stocking striped bass in Jordan. Yeah, you know, the science nerd part of it is these fish, when they're in that hot bathtub situation, they basically are, they're still feeding and they're still eating, but their metabolic rate is so high that they can't gain any weight. And so from, say, middle May to mid to late October, they're eating, but they're losing weight. And so when you catch one, you're like, oh, that fish should weigh two pounds more than it actually does. And then they gain weight all winter because they still feed through the winter because they like that cooler water. And, you know, they'll gain weight all winter. And right before you catch them in the summertime, they actually look halfway decent. But then they start losing weight again. And so that's the real problem that turns out for hot bathtub situations like Jordan Lake, High Rock Lake, those areas. Yeah. And it just so happens to be one of the better times to catch them in the reservoir too in the summer when they're kind of schooling up, but they also have really high hook and release mortality in the summertime. So they're just getting hit twice as hard when they're... Yeah. yeah. I mean, you catch striped bass when it's, when the water temperature is 85 and you release it, mm, chances are it's probably dead. It's tough. Tough life. life. (laughs) It is a tough life at that point. Over 80 degree water temperature for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, Jordan regularly is... 85, 90, 91, 92, 93 Mm -hmm. in August, really from almost top to bottom, not quite, but the water that's got oxygen in it is, that's the water temperature. It's pretty shallow compared to some of our other reservoirs. And so, you know, we're talking about hybrids here. That's one of the tools that hybrids gives us. It gives us the opportunity to provide a maroonid fishery or maroon fishery, Mm -hmm. which that's the family of fish. It means temperate bass. It means temperate bass, sorry. But, it provides that opportunity in places that we can't really use striped bass. And so that's one of the great things about hybrid striped bass for sure. Yeah. And I mean, it's completely within our control. So they don't reproduce naturally when we stock them into a system. If we decide, oh, that's not what we wanted to do or they're causing issues with some of the other fish, we can stop stocking and, you know, within three or four years, those fish will be out of the system. Yeah. That's a great point, Kelsey, is that we do have pretty good control over over the situation. Mm -hmm. We can always stop it. One of the things that I find very fascinating about them is they just don't live very long. In North Carolina, By unless it's a slow-growing lake, by age four or five, they're gone. Mm -hmm. They've died out. So So down my way, on the coast, there's several hybrid striped bass farms in the Aurora area, and then they don't live long kind of hit a note for me because after we have a hurricane and there's some flooding events, we'll see hybrid striped bass fairly regularly that escaped. But normally about three to four years later, we don't see them anymore. So yep. they get out, they either get caught out or they die out and then they're, we don't see them again. So they're really not, I mean, while they are a little bit concerning because we don't want to genetically vary our native striped bass population, they really don't last very long. So, but it's kind of, it's kind of a neat phenomenon to see sometimes. So, yeah. So, we've done a lot of work on hybrid striped bass. A lot of work here lately in the past, say, five to six, seven years. Why don't you tell us about some of the work that we've done and maybe we can talk about what we've learned? 
Yeah. I mean, we have done a lot of work and a lot of that's thanks to you. You started (laughs) a lot of our projects. So before you moved on to your next role, I'm just kind of carrying the torch. But yeah, we've got two research projects right now that we're kind of wrapping up and they're in different stages of wrapping up right now. The first one is basically a fishing mortality study on Lake Norman where we stopped stocking striped bass and we started stocking hybrids. And it was a really popular program just right off the bat. And we knew there were certain times of the year where they kind of pool up and they can get hit really hard by anglers. And so we were a little concerned about the amount of harvest that was going on. And we just wanted to know what the harvest was. So we started a tagging project where you... And some of the other colleagues went out and caught 20 to 30 fish per month and tagged them with an external tag that basically had a number on it and a $100 reward. And so anglers could you know, call us back and let us know if they kept the fish, if they released the fish, where they caught them, what kind of lure they were using. We get all types of information on it. And um, I think some anglers made a lot of money on that project. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hundred dollars <laughs> some were real good at it. <laughs> yeah. So, some not as much, but some were real good at it for it, sure. It was like a second job, I think, for some of them. <laughs> Easy, yeah. The IRS may be listening. Oh. <laughs> yes, that's true. But yeah, so that gives us an idea of we could look at monthly harvest rates or exploitation. We could look at seasonal. We could compare boat anglers versus bank anglers. And you know, we're still working on that data right now. But basically what we found is that the boat anglers are keeping about 50% of the fish that they catch. And bank anglers are keeping almost 90%. So that's kind of what we expected, but that's a lot of mortality. So Yeah. But at the same time, you hear that number, 50% from a boat mm-hmm. angler and 90% from a bank angler. I can tell you from experience, I mean, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, that boat anglers outnumber bank anglers probably 10 to 1. On Norman. On Norman. Right. You know, in terms of fishing on Norman, there's only a couple of places on the lake, you know, that bank anglers can actually right. fish. And that's seasonal. Yeah, and that's yeah. very seasonal. Yeah, it was always in the cold winter months. And even now, the lake has changed how they operate those power plants and stuff. So the lake's changed a little bit. The bank anglers don't have nearly the success they had Mm. early on in the project. Now it's primarily boat anglers that are having more success because the fish are more spread out. Yeah. I mean, hybrids like to move, so it helps when you have a boat. Yeah, hybrids like to move. I mean, I stayed on a school of fish one day (laughs) and we probably moved eight or nine miles in that day in the reservoir, just going down the lake. As they went down, we went down with them you know, to catch them, to tag them. So yeah, they they definitely move. They do not stay in one place. Mm -mm. Which is a great segue into the next research project that we are working on. (laughs) Yeah. We started a telemetry project to basically be able to track these fish during the summertime, but also throughout the year to see what depths they're at during the summertime and if they're able to find refuge from the deeper parts of the lake that don't have oxygen anymore. So. What we did was we tagged some fish in 2020 and then again in 2021 with acoustic telemetry tags. And those tags release a ping every so often that tells us how deep the fish is at and what temperature they're swimming at and their location. So we're able to put a bunch of receivers out throughout the lake. And anytime a fish swims by, we know, you know exactly where they were and 
what temperature and what depth they were at. And so that gives us a lot of insight on if they're behaving the same way that stripers do in the summertime or are they seeking refuge elsewhere or not. I mean, are they able to go down into those deeper waters and survive or just a whole bunch of information that will be helpful for us when we're picking other reservoirs to stock in the future. Yeah. You know, I helped out on that project as I was moving on. The real concern with any striped bass or hybrid striped bass is summertime kills because that's Mm -hmm. what was happening at Lake Norman. You know, striped bass would get down in that that lower, the fancy word is hypolimnion. I can't think of a better way to say it, but lower water by The bottom of the lake. The bottom, (laughs) thank you. The bottom of the lake, you know, and it's oxygenated in May, Mm -hmm. but by July, it's not, and they're stuck, and they don't know what to do. And everybody thinks it's like, it is like a bubble, but it's not. It's more like an amoeba, if you know what an amoeba is. It's kind of got arms and tentacles, and and that oxygenated water just kind of spreads through the bottom. And as the summertime gets hotter and hotter and hotter, that oxygen just slowly recedes back towards the dam. And so those fish are just getting slowly pinched back towards the dam. And eventually that oxygen runs out and the fish are basically trapped and they'll suffocate and die and float to the surface. And, you know, that's why we abandoned, you talked about that earlier, Kelsey, that's why we abandoned having stripers in Lake Norman because they would get trapped in large numbers. And it's natural. Yeah. I mean, the lake itself isn't natural, but it's not because of anything. It's just because of the shape of the lake. Yeah, it's the shape of the lake. It's the depth of the water. Some lakes have it. Some lakes don't. And some years are better than others. Some years we'd go and not have any fish die. And then some years we'd go and we'd have 10,000 of them die. And the 10,000 fish kill kind of put a damper on striped bass in Lake Norman. Things may not be going well. Things may not be going well. And that's hard to recover from. You know, we had a fish kill with stripers at Jordan Mm -hmm. that was a little different. It was probably still oxygen related, but it also coincided with forage die-off nine months before. So remember that whole, I got to eat to survive the summer? Well, they didn't get a chance to eat to survive the summer, and so they died. So there's different ways that, that, you know, fish get affected, but... You know, that project that you were just talking about, what we as an agency are trying to find out is, do hybrids act just like striped bass and go down in these depths and get pinned in in large numbers? Or can they? It's going to be great to figure out, you know, some of the things they, I mean, I saw firsthand some of like individual fish, which is not the whole group. You know, an individual fish would be down in that that lower water body and above them is like 30, 40 feet of just no oxygen. And those hybrids would be able to swim through that or find a way out because the very next day they would be way up in the water column in a totally different spot. Now, that doesn't mean that hybrids haven't died because they have. We've had a few hybrids die in some fish kills in the summer, but... Yeah, that's the cool thing about the telemetry project is you can watch them, you know, and they kind of like to skirt, live life on the edge a little bit. They, They have these patterns where they're going, they dive deep to eat or seek refuge in the cooler water, but then they come right back up. Whereas stripers, I think, you know, they need that cooler water so they stay down there longer and they die. But you can watch the hybrids on the the receivers go down and then, you know, you come back next month and then they're still down there and you're like, well, he didn't make it. Yeah. But he tried. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like we said, we've seen fish die down there and we've seen fish survive down there, you know, get out of it, which is... I mean, that's true of probably every fish, but it seems like the hybrids on first glance have a better way of getting out of that anoxic water than the stripers did for sure. 
Yeah. And like in general, I think they avoid that whole hypolimnion or bottom of the lake more than the stripers do. And, you know, something that was a little interesting this summer was a lot of the fish were not in, not where we kind of would expect them to be. They were Mm -hmm. seeking refuge in a lot of the river mouths or the creek mouths. And like there were some fish that stayed in one location for like three months. And I for sure thought they were dead. Like all through summer, they just hunkered down in that one location, like three or four of them. And then, you know, come October, November, they were gone. Yeah. So, yeah. Be interesting to see if there's like a spring or something down there providing yeah. some, some cooler water. But yeah. the cool thing I think about this project is it really kind of gets at what we're trying to do with this podcast is take the data and the projects that we're doing and help folks catch more fish. So, you know, I think it's really exciting once this data gets summarized. If you're struggling at a certain time of the year, mm-hmm. maybe it's because you're fishing at the wrong depth, you know, and maybe you need to go deeper, go shallower, what have you. So I think that this will put information in the hands of our anglers that will really be meaningful and helpful and maybe they'll catch a few more fish. Yeah, that's the goal. If I can, you know, somehow figure out how to process all those millions of pings <laughs> first. <laughs> yeah, it is daunting when yeah. there's like millions of data points to go through. You might need to check in on me in a couple of months, make sure I'm all right. Right. Because, I mean, we talked a little bit about it, but that listening device, it's listening all the time. Mm-hmm. And so if there's a fish near a listening device and pinging, it's pinging all the time. And then you have to sort through all that data and, and figure out what it means. So it's... A lot of pings. All I can say is you're welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Corey. You're welcome. <laughs> but it gives you so much better data than like when I was in grad school and we were checking, finding fish, you know, once a week or something like yeah. that. So it's like almost real time, well, not real time data, but real time in the fish's life that you're looking back yeah. at, not just spot observations. Yeah, and telemetry is nice because you don't need to study a ton of fish. You don't need to go out there and catch hundreds and hundreds of fish to know what's going on. You get, you know, we tagged 50 fish that first year, and basically anywhere they go, we're getting data off of them. Well, that's the beauty of a school in fish, too. If one's going somewhere, there's the assumption that a good portion of them are moving together. So That's right. They generally were, not always, but a lot of times they were always found, there was a group Mm -hmm. of them together and then you'd go up the lake and there'd be another group of them together. Mm -hmm. You know, there'd be three or four tags in each group. So definitely they like to run with the pack, so to speak. So what do they eat? (laughs) Like if I'm a fisherman. and anything. If I'm a fisherman and I'm saying, I walk into the tackle store and Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, you know, the way to catch one of these jokers is to put something on the end of my line that looks like something they eat. What do I need to look for? Wow. Corey? Yeah. So <laughs> the first project that you talked about, the exploitation project, I think I look back, the boat I was in and another boat, so two boats together, we caught in three years, we caught like 5,500 hybrids. So I'm going to stop right here. He just said he caught 5,500 hybrids. <laughs> Normally, we're talking about how I catch more fish than Corey. And I think maybe he's getting a little bit of a (laughs) retribution right now. No, (laughs) No, not at all. (laughs) It's funny. It really depends on time of year and conditions like every other fish, right? It's not always the same. The one thing I would tell you is I've caught them live bait. I've caught them artificial. In Lake Norman in particular, 
They're predominantly feeding on alewife or threadfin shad. That's the two forage fish that's the most dominant. But in general, they're just kind of generalist. They're known for that. They're known for eating about anything. They'll eat anything that's on the bottom. They'll eat mussels. They'll eat worms. They'll eat fish of any kind. So they're kind of generalist. So, I mean, people catch them on chicken livers. I mean, you know. Generally, you know, something white, silvery, some sort of bait fish like that. And that still holds true with a hybrid. You know, if I was going to tell somebody to use an artificial bait, the first bait I'd tell them is a swim bait that's about three inches long, once again, small. And it's either going to be white or silver. Mm -hmm. They got big eyes. They can see really well. So, you know, one of the things I'd tell people, depending on the water clarity, you better hide your bait using fluorocarbon, you know, leader and that kind of stuff because they do see really, really well. But, you know, during the project, our go-to was if they were schooled up really good, we would artificial bait fish for them with roadrunners, so underspins, small ones, really small ones, you know, like eighth ounce or maybe up to a quarter ounce head on those marabou tails. Swim baits, Kitex are really good, even though they don't last super long, but they are really good because they give a lot of action. Once again, white or silver. And then jigging spoons, because a lot of times, like at Lake Norman, and hybrids are in other places besides Lake Norman. We'll talk about that in a minute. But at Lake Norman, a lot of times, they're, they're in fairly deep water. So if they're not up at the surface, you know, they might be in 45 to 60 foot of water. And a jigging spoon is a really good tool it takes a long time to let a three-inch swim bait sink 40 feet. Yeah, it takes a long time. And you can get right on top of that school. If you got good sonar, you can get right on top of that school. They're going to be mixed with white perch. They're going to be mixed with Alabama bass or spots, as people call them there. But you'll catch flathead catfish in the same school. They're all chasing that bait. They're looking at bait. And so you can get a, get a jigging spoon, count down, and bang, they're going to be there. And you can catch them with jigging spoon pretty pretty good as well. But a lot of times I use live bait. A lot of people there use mussels that they buy from the grocery store, put those on hooks. They work really, really well, particularly in the spring of the year when they're running up the river. They work well. They work well year-round, really. So, like I said, they're generalists. They'll eat just about anything. Yeah, they get that from the white bass. Yeah, it's a white bass <laughs> trait. That's exactly right, Kelsey. It is. Maybe that's why I like white bass so much. Yeah, it is It is definitely a white bass trait. I mean, I think stripers have a tendency to be that way at times. They can be very generalist. Sure. Definitely hybrids and white bass for sure. Just kind of like if it's in front of them, they tend to eat it. Now, one thing I will tell you that they don't generally like compared to, I mean, they will eat it, but it's not as frequent as it is with striped bass. And that's cut bait. Whereas the striped bass eat cut bait pretty frequently. Especially in the rivers. Yeah, in the rivers. And they will do that in the rivers when they're running up to do their fake spawn in the river. They'll do that as well. But if you hang cut bait, below the boat in deep water. Mm, I haven't had a ton of success doing that. It's interesting that they would eat cut bait or not eat cut bait as well as they would eat mussels. I don't know what it is about the mussels. So the fishermen there figured this out, particularly the bank fishermen figured this out early on in the hybrid striped bass fishery there at at Norman. And it's well known now. I mean, I'm on all their Facebook pages and all that stuff, and they're all joking about, you know, the mussels, buying mussels from the grocery store and running out. I tell people all the time, in that Mooresville area, the company that sells this brand of mussels <laughs> has got to be like, what in the world is going on from Mooresville to Hickory the, to at Charlotte? The grocery store. There's like a triangle. Mooresville, Hickory to Charlotte, they like sell out of these mussels all the time. It's like, who is living here that they love to eat our <laughs> mussels so much? I'm like... 
they don't want to eat them. <laughs> They're putting them on a hook <laughs> and throwing them down there. I stumbled on that from the bank anglers. We started learning about it and we started using it and it was very effective. In fact, it can be more effective than live bait at times, hmm. which is odd phenomena to me, but they really do like it. Corey, do you know if they use that method in any of the other lakes? Like, is it popular for hybrid fishing across the state or is that just a Lake Norman thing? I only know it as a Lake Norman thing. Mm -hmm. I have tried it at Heiko briefly. I have not given up on that yet. And I've tried it at Ocala. And it wasn't, once again, I'm fishing a lake that I'm not very used to fishing. So that's part of it. I'm trying to learn everything. So I haven't given up on it, but it was not like... Ooh, you know, I love this bait. Let me eat it. Are you putting it on the bottom? You can actually put it on the bottom. A lot, like when they're up in the river, yes. But a lot of people suspend them. So if you want to go hybrid fishing, put one on a slip cork and drag it behind the boat. A lot of people do that too. There you go. I mean, we can talk about that until I'm blue in the face. There's well, we got time. This is the hybrid striped bass podcast. I know. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to catch these things. So if I'm going fishing for, and we'll get back more into fishing a little bit because I know we hadn't covered it all. What size fish do I need to be prepared for? You mean that you're going to catch? Yeah, if we go hybrid fishing, what's the range? It depends on the lake. So I'll say that up front. Generally at Lake Norman, the fish don't get super huge. And that's just a Lake Norman thing because of a nutrient load issue. I would say good fish range from 16 to about 22, 23, 24 inches, something like that. Now, a 23, 24-inch hybrid, that's going to pull your string for sure. They're pretty strong fish. I have seen them bigger than that at Norman, but they're not very common. Mm -hmm. But now you shift over into where Kelsey and I used to work in District 5, and you get to like Ocala, which is a really small reservoir, but the fish there, the quality there is through the roof. I mean, really good quality hybrids that we've seen there. I got pictures of Kelsey holding, you know, 9, 10, 11-pound hybrids. So it just really depends on the reservoir. But you're not going to get, I mean, the state record is, I think, 14 and some change. So you're not going to get that striped bass size like the 20, 30-pounders. You right. know, you're not going to get that. But I will dare say, you catch a 10-pound hybrid, you got something on your hands. What kind of tackle are we talking about? Medium action rods? Yeah. I mean, that's generally what I fish with mm -hmm. is medium action rods for the most part. And what pound test generally? So at Lake Norman, the water's very clear. And so like braid is like 12 to 15 mm -hmm. braid. And then my leader is usually like eight pound. Gotcha. Because you're not going to catch too many that are above like five pounds. Now, I will say from some of my previous Days. If you're using eight pound fluorocarbon, you have to have your drag set. Yes. On can't stout them. Right. You got to have that that drag kind of fine tuned if you're going to throw that light of fluorocarbon. Yeah, I've found, and people listening are probably going to be like, "No, nah, he's wrong," and that's fine because I'm not not There's, the genius at this. There are other ways to do. There this. are other ways to do this, but you know, I found that the eight pound is thin enough and clear enough, and usually the leader is fairly long, mm -hmm. so that they can't see your line. I mean, you can get in places at Norman, what would you say? You can see eight to 10 feet down in some places. Oh, at yeah. Norman. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, it's pretty clear. Yeah, it's pretty clear. It's pretty clear, especially as you get lower towards the dam. It gets pretty clear. You have to adapt to that because, they, like I said, they have really good eyes and can see pretty well. And Heiko's pretty clear as well. 
those are really the two lakes I can speak to, but Oak Hollow's pretty eutrophic, so can't really see very far down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can see maybe 12 inches down. Yeah. And so they're growing in different systems. We got them in different places. You know, they're in Moss Lake, just west of Charlotte. Mm-hmm. You know, we got them in a couple of city lakes scattered throughout the Piedmont. And they're up on W. Carr Scott, up in the mountains, foothills, mountains area. Mm-hmm. And so we don't use them everywhere, but we do use them when we think it's appropriate. And, you know, they're a great fish to catch. They're really fun to catch. They're actually good to eat, too. I think all that, that whole family, the temperate passes, as Ben says, that whole family of fishes are pretty good eating fish, for sure. So we've, we've laid down the temperate bass word twice now, and we probably <laughs> need to explain what that means. So Why don't you do that? But much to the chagrin of all bass anglers, largemouth bass anglers. Are not bass. They're not a real bass. They're, they're sunfish. They're in the same family as bluegills and crappies. You know, they're a sunfish. Whereas the temperate bass, or some people even call them true bass. I'm not trying to offend anybody who's a largemouth bass <laughs> fisherman. I can give you his phone number, his personal phone number. <laughs> no. You can find Ben Ricks at, never mind, I won't do it. Two bald biologists. <laughs> yeah, two bald biologists, right. Two bald biologists at ncwildlife.org. There yes, it is. We'll, there it we'll is. say it say the right, it right way. So in case anyone does need to send me a thing about that. That's fine. But largemouth bass, again, are sunfish. The temperate bass is a whole different group of fish that are different from the sunfish. And they include white bass, white perch, striped bass in North Carolina. Yep. And then there's a couple other, like the yellow bass yellow that's bass. found in the Mississippi. Yep. So. But they're just a different group of fish, kind of like the same way that catfish are a different group of fish from sunfish. So, yeah, just to throw that out there in case anybody's going, what in the world are those guys talking about? Which may happen a lot, but that's why you Probably does. Hopefully, I'll send us those questions if you have people at home going, man, they just don't know what they're talking about. That's okay, too. Yeah. Hopefully. I mean, you're a genius, but, you know. I don't know about that. Yeah. I don't know. It's okay. But if you have questions, please send them to us because that's what we're here for. So, but yeah, just a, a point of clarification since it's come up a couple of times. I just want to make sure that the folks listening understood what we were talking about there. So, because we can be a little on the fish nerd side of things. Thanks, Ben. Yeah. He's helpful, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. I like having him on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I like being here. So, one of the things I want to talk about is is basically what should I do as an angler? We've hit on it a little bit, but what should I do as an angler? depending on the season, if I was going to go try to catch these things. Because they're not everywhere. So, like at Lake Norman, they're not all over the whole reservoir. They are in pockets. And that pocket moves depending on the time of year. And things that I thought held true during the original tagging project, the exploitation project, haven't held true later on, as we've learned in the tracking project where we actually tracked them, you know, going around the lake. And so that's been very interesting. But I guess I'll start probably in the spring of the year. So they basically are doing the spawning migration just like stripers would do. Their biology is telling them to do Tell something. Them we got to go. Right. And so as spring approaches in these reservoirs, they're going to kind of make their way out of creeks, get out on the main channel points of the river and kind of hold until the water temperature and the photo period and all that gets wonderful. And then they're going to make, most of them, not all of them, are going to make these spawning migrations up the river. The males will come first. 
as striped bass do on like the Roanoke, for example, the males will come first and the females will come in waves. So in May-ish, late May? I think it's probably going to depend on the reservoir and the water temperature, but I can speak to Norman for sure. sure. It'll start mid-April. By May, it's slowing down mm-hmm. a lot. So they tend to be like white bass tend to be a little more cooler. Yeah. Yeah. It tends to be a little cooler than striped bass. And so usually I tell people, if you're trying to fish the river at Lake Norman, the last two weeks in April is where I would target. Because the phenomena that I have found is that it doesn't always hold true every year, but when they're done, they're done. They're gone. Like it's a crescendo up to this big spawn. And then all of a sudden it's just like somebody dropped a hammer on them and they all vacate the river. And they don't go very far down the river, but they'll get out of the narrow parts of the river where they're actually trying to spawn. And so I can tell you, so we started stocking Norman in 2013 and we started the tagging project in 2016. And the first year, me and the guy that volunteered on the project, we had the river to ourselves. I mean, we didn't see a boat within miles and we were catching fish and it was like Christmas morning as a five-year-old. We were having time of our lives. The next year, we saw maybe five boats in the river. The next year, we saw 250 boats in the river. <laughs> and now you can practically walk across Somebody the told somebody Somebody something. learned. Yeah. Well, that's my job. That's right. <laughs> that's my job. My job is to tell people where fish are if I know where they are. And so during that spring run, they are really congregated in a tight place and fairly susceptible to being caught. I mean, I've had moments where me and my buddy, we've sat in one spot and maybe caught a hundred or hundred plus in three hours and you didn't move, you know. That's pretty solid action. Pretty solid. I mean... And they're in such groups, and the water's so shallow up there at Norman in certain spots that you could dip the one that you're that you got on the line, and you would dip five because they're herded up together. They're running together. You know, what's he got? I want what he's got. You know, right. kind of thing. And so that phenomenon happened numerous times. I mean, it was like hilarious to us because we dip a fish, not really look. We're looking at our fish, and we're not really looking in the water. And we'd come now up with I'm three or four more. I'm figuring out why he tagged so many. It's because he caught one and dipped five. Well, that only happens in the river, and it only happened <laughs> probably five or six times. It didn't happen that often. Skewing your numbers. Yeah, yeah. But as you move into summertime, when the population was smaller, we didn't see them a whole lot in the summertime. But Kelsey, what do you know about the summertime and where they are? Because People have figured this out now that the population's been there long enough. People have actually figured this out. I'm going to test Kelsey and see if she knows where they are in the summertime. You just said it a minute ago where they were. Oh, well, I mean, that's in one one reservoir, right? Like, yeah. we, I think one thing we know is that from, as you said, like year to year, it could be totally different. And that's true. You know, just because you see one thing one year doesn't mean they're going to be there the next year. They're just, they're kind of unpredictable like that. But this summer... We saw them, they were either on Norman, they were either in the mouth of the Davidson or they were up the creek by just upstream a mile marker 24. Yeah, so we're getting real specific yeah, on where to go I know. now. But hey, just telling some... Don't worry, the fishermen already know they where they already are. They know what, what I'm saying. <laughs> but it's a shallower area. There's flowing water. And I think that's why they liked it was because it had oxygen in it. Yeah. So fish like to breathe. 
and swim. <laughs> and swim. Swim, breathe, and eat. Things they love. One thing I learned about it, being on the boat with y'all, was that they generally are in the river channel or like, well, Davidson Creek's kind of like being in the river channel. It's a big creek. It's a large, pretty large part of the lake. Is that they are, you said it earlier, that they are basically trying to find the best of both worlds. Mm-hmm. They get as deep as they can and they're still able to breathe and there's still food there available to them. So they're not necessarily up at the shallowest part of the water in the summertime. They're going to be in the cooler part. So what I would tell anglers is look for the, the thermocline on your sonar. They're going to be right above it or right in it. And that's kind of where they're going to hang out. I think that's probably going to hold true throughout the reservoirs because they still have striper blood in them. And so they're going to seek that cooler water, as cool a water as they can find. I think in general that summertime deep water fishing, no matter whether you're fishing for stripers, hybrids, largemouth bass, you name it, that's a little bit of a tricky thing to do. Like It takes a while to figure out, and it it takes even longer if you don't have good electronics. But you can still figure it out, but it's just tricky. Yeah, and it's going to vary from lake to lake. Well, you're not throwing at a stump on the bank anymore. You're doing something that's, you know, harder to see and harder to visualize. But it's undeniably very productive. Well, so when the hybrids first started there, nobody caught stripers. Like, striper fishermen quit fishing hybrids in the summertime. They couldn't catch them. And now it might be one of the more productive times of the year. They basically figured out, okay, river channel on the thermocline, I got it, you know, kind of thing. And they just find the school and sit on them. They're schooling more that time of year, too, and they're, they're not as dispersed as they would be. like in the fall or the springtime. And, you know, one thing we found too is that they like to hang out kind of right where it drops off so that they can dip down when they need to and get back up so they can survive. Anglers are listening. They know what that means. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. But yeah, I mean, so summertime is more difficult, I think. It would be for me anyway, because it's not the fishing I grew up on. And it's, like you said, you got to have really good sonar and know what you're looking for. Well, and and they're moving up and down. So it's not like they're suspended in one place, like the wintertime, or they might be a little more suspended in the water column. In the the summer, they're going up and down, up and down. So you might see them at one depth and one minute, and then they'll be at the bottom of the lake the next minute. Are they like stripers? Do they like overcast days? Generally, yes, they do. I would say they're definitely better on an overcast day. You can still catch them on a sunny day, but they tend to, just like stripers do, they tend to be higher up in the water column when it's overcast. They might be at the surface feeding. Mm -hmm. They tend to be deeper, might be in 30, 40 foot of water, depending on the lake when it's, depending on how clear it is when it's sunny. Yeah, just, it really depends. I mean, you know, we saw things on the movement project, you know, in the dead of night, they'll come up in a foot of water and feed on points at Norman. You know, you could see, literally see them, Hmm. you know, go from 35 foot to a foot, you know, or two foot deep up on a point and feed. And so they're definitely moving a lot. They got tails and no homes. (laughs) That's right. They don't really have home ranges, so they just kind of... Their home range is the lake that they're in. The whole lake. Yeah. Yeah. And so to finish my thought process about (laughs) fall and winter, you know, as the water temperature cools, They'll get off of that river channel pattern. They'll start going in the backs of creeks. They're following the bait, folks. I mean, yeah, you know, fishing is is difficult, but it's not rocket science. They follow bait. Fish like to eat and breathe and breathe. Don't forget about breathing and swim. Mm-hmm. Swim and spawn and spawn. <laughs> That's yeah. about all that they're trying to do. 
as an angler, you're trying to get in front of whatever they're trying to do and, and meet them there. So. Yeah. Yeah. So if you find a school of bait, I would say if hybrids are in the lake, you got a pretty good chance of finding hybrids mixed in with whatever's chasing that bait around for sure. So if you had, Corey, if you had to have one bait, maybe we talked a little bit about it, but if you had to have one bait to go hybrid fishing, what would it be? Mm, that's a hard one. So well, that's a good question. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's really got to work all year round. Yeah. Well, I mean, live bait's the best by far, but let's sure. just say artificial. I mean, really, Kitek swim bait's hard to, or some kind of, even a little fishy, mm-hmm. you know, those types of swim baits, something small. Remember, we talked about their mouths being kind of small. So they tend to focus on smaller baits. That doesn't mean you won't catch them on a six inch swim bait. You know, they're aggressive. So they'll hit whatever's moving, but they really do like smaller baits. So, like a, the one I used and got used to using is a two and three quarter inch Kitek swim bait, white or silver. Mm-hmm. And on like a like an eighth ounce jig head, and it has a lot of action to it. The only downside of that bait is it lasts about three fish, and then you'll have to put on another one. It gets chewed up pretty good. So it's a fairly soft plastic. Then. It's a very soft plastic. There's always that balance in that. You go with a harder plastic, it has less action. Yeah. Yeah. A softer plastic and they tear up so easy. And it may be, you know, I'm used to fishing it at Norman. It may be that the water clarity is so good at Norman that you need that extra action to mm-hmm. get that bite, to get that response. Well, that definitely speaks to the colors that you're using. The clearer, oh, yeah. the yeah. clearer, yeah. clearer it is, the less you can throw hot pink or chartreuse yeah. or something like yeah. that. You know, I've only fished these other reservoirs a couple of times. Haven't been very successful. Part of that is I don't know where they are. It's hard to find them sometimes. The populations aren't as big as the one at Norman. Norman, you hunt around enough at Norman, you're probably going to run into them eventually. I mean, we're stocking pretty good numbers in Norman, too. Yeah, it's 10 fish to the acre, I believe. Is that right, Kelsey? I think so. Fairly dense. Yeah, and I think it's the highest stocking rate we have for hybrids in the state is at Norman. And the others are, they're all about the same. They're probably five fish to the acre. It ranges from, like I think Ocala is under five. Gotcha. And Heiko, I think, is eight, eight to ten. We're stocking that many because it's so popular, and there's people that are using yeah. those fish. Yeah, I mean, our har- like Kelsey mentioned, our harvest rates are pretty stinking high mm-hmm. in Norman. So, you know, in order to keep fishing the population, we're having to stock fairly high too. Mm-hmm. It has been very successful at Lake Norman. Stripers had struggled for years there. I'll be honest, we had taken a pretty much a public relations beating there as an agency because we just could not get stripers to do very well. And when we switched over to hybrids, there was some thoughts, well, it might be good, it might not. And it's really, really done very well. And I've been very pleased with it. Yeah. It's kind of interesting as a fish biologist to just kind of see how that fishery has built up. Because, you know, I remember when we switched. And like you said, there was a point that folks didn't know how to catch them and now they figured it out. So it's kind of, it's interesting to see the, how that's evolved over time. Yeah. It's really morphed. When we first stocked them, there was, Still the, what I call the old guard, and they'll laugh when I say that, because if they're listening, the old guard striper fishermen, and there was a few of them on the lake. There was, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 at that time that knew about hybrids. They could fish them in a boat, but the bank fishing was unbelievable. I mean, you could go to Marshall Steam Station's hot hole, and, you know, back when they were running power a lot through that system... It's not a very long bank. It's probably two to 300 yards worth of bank that you can fish. 
you could go on a Tuesday morning when they're in there and there'd be 150, 200 anglers in there. Now that's changed. They don't run the power plants the same. And so that draw that they were getting, those fish would go in it because they were chasing thread fins. They were seeking that warm water. They're still there, but they're not nearly what they once were. But what's also changed is that boat anglers have just boomed. We have a ton of boat anglers now year round where we didn't before. It's not uncommon to see 30, 40 boats in a group of fish in the wintertime, you know, dead of winter. Basically, you know, the one thing I tell people is if you have seagulls on your lake, find the birds in the wintertime. Now, every other angler is going to find the birds in the wintertime too. So you're going to be surrounded by friends. So, and I think all of our lakes have seagulls. Well, all of our parking lots have seagulls. Well, all our parking lots, but not every lake has that same effect. Where, I mean, some of the larger reservoirs have been on, yeah. But mm-hmm. some of these small, like Oak Hollow, I'm not sure that there's a bunch of seagulls feeding where hybrids are feeding. I've never seen that. I'm not even sure Heiko's got that. But like at Norman, yeah, the birds have been there, you know, ever since I've been fishing hybrids, birds have been there. And, you know, they find, you know, as fish feed, that bait fish are getting knocked up to the surface, the seagulls feed. And I'm not sure who's chasing who, but the anglers eventually find those birds. And generally there's hybrids or something feeding underneath that. And that's only a cold month phenomena. You know, by the time it warms up, they're gone. Mm. Interesting. I think we should talk about all the different names that hybrid striped bass have. That's an excellent idea. We actually probably should have started with that in the beginning. (laughs) That might have been helpful for sure. But here we are. You know, we're coming full circle. So I'm going to throw one out. Maybe we'll just go around the table till we run out of names. Say our favorite name. There's a bunch of them. Right. Yeah, differently. <laughs> if you said the same thing, it's a conversation. And if we have it wrong, we'll just tell them that's wrong. Right. Yeah. Okay. So who goes first? You. Me. You. Bodie Bass. Yeah. So where is it called Bodie Bass? I have no clue. And <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to know. So in the state of North Carolina, the official name of the hybrid striped bass is the Bodie Bass. When you look it up in our Regs Digest, that's going to be the name of it was named by our commission, ooh, maybe late 80s into the 90s. I can't remember the exact time it got renamed, but it was named after an outdoor writer in North Carolina whose first name was Bodie. So that's how I got his name. I just learned something. There you go. All right, so the next one's Palmetto Bass. Are we going to go after why they're named things? No, no, that was good enough. (laughs) I'm assuming Palmetto's for South Carolina, but anyway, I could be wrong. Well, the Palmetto bass is what we stock, so that's a cross between the white white bass male and striped bass female. See, that's why we have her. That's right. And then there's, what's the other one is also, it's the sunshine bass. That's the other way? Mm Mm-hmm, so that's Uh the female white bass with the... Male striped bass. I'm learning. I didn't realize it was the cross was named specific. She's literally dropping knowledge on us. Dropping some info on you. This is great. Yeah, we definitely should have led with this. (laughs) We should have led with this. Yeah. Wiper. Yeah, I might be out of it. Might be out of my names. I don't know. I I just called them hybrids. Yeah, well, that's what they are. But yeah, so there's different names, and it depends on where you are in the country. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll hear people call them all those names in different places. So, you know. And they're found pretty much throughout the Southeast. There's a lot of states that have stocked hybrid striped bass. Oh, yeah. They're probably from Texas, Oklahoma, East, and North. Maybe some further west than that. Maybe that. that. And on into Kentucky, like North, you know, Kentucky and South. So People have a lot of different names for fish. Yes. I'll never forget the first time I went on the electrofishing boat with Ben. I was a grad student, 
I personally have a lot of different names for fish. <laughs> and no, you, we were about to start electrofishing and, and I was very new to like the fisheries world. And, and Ben was like, all right, catch all the brim. And I was like, okay, wait, what's brim? Because <laughs> like, I'm from Michigan. and Maybe you shouldn't have led with this. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I'm from Michigan, so that wasn't a term that I knew very well, so. They call them sunfish up there. Yeah. Or sunnies. Or actually, they just all, my dad especially, he could just call them all bluegills. It doesn't matter what it is, a bluegill. We call them all brim, no matter what they are. Yeah. 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 So, you know, you learn a lot in school and in life. <laughs> Hang around Ben long enough, you'll learn something. Maybe. Maybe. It might not be useful, but you'll learn something. That's true. Yeah. All right. Is it time for listener questions? Yeah, let's do some listener questions. First, let's see. What do we have here? We've got uh, Mr. Mass. He sent us an email. He wants to know about the spring shad run and if we will ever do a podcast about it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> have we scheduled it? No. <laughs> but it is a great idea. We're really lucky that we have so many fisheries in North Carolina that we're struggling to get them all scheduled into a monthly podcast. Um, we will do a shad podcast. We may do it sooner than we think, but right now we don't have any plans for it. But let's talk shad for a minute. Yeah. I think that's the best thing to do. Because we're basically a month and a half, two months away. It will not surprise me if somewhere between Christmas and New oh. Year's, somebody sends me a message saying I caught the first shad of the year because there's some diehards that that's they want that that claim so yeah but really marching in the first part of April is typically the best part of the shad run and it's really kind of a neat thing because it's kind of that first wintertime fishing can sometimes be tough and it's that first kind of little bit warmer weather high success fishery so it kind of kicks off your year in fishing and it's a very productive thing there's a lot of different rivers really all of our coastal rivers have some level of shad fishing and you know some of the best shad fishing is right here in raleigh yeah american shad right here in raleigh is a fantastic fishery we have two species of shad we have hickory shad and we have american shad the american shad in general, run further up the rivers than the hickory shad do. They show up first, and they stay here longer. So while the hickory shad run is really in that March-April time frame, the American shad run can go all the way to the end of May. So there's lots of opportunity out there. And the Americans tend to be a little bit bigger than the hickories. A little bit bigger, a little bit better to eat. Most of our shad fishing is catch and release anyway, but there are some guys that like to eat them. And the baits that we're talking about are generally little darts or grubs or small spoons. Basically, something bright and flashy is the main yep. thing. Anything from an ultralight to a medium light rod will do the job just fine. And if you're you're introducing kids or youth to fishing, it's a great way to introduce them to fishing. It's a really neat fishery because, I mean, we're talking about schooling fish in high flow, generally high flow situation. So if you figure out the cast to make, all you have to do is make that cast over and over, over and again. over again. Never and move. You, you can keep catching fish in the same spot all day long. Yep. Caught hundreds just sitting in one spot. 
And it's wonderful. They're really not eating because they're hungry. There's more out of aggravation, and that's kind of why the bright colors seem to work out fairly well for for fishing for. So yeah, white and pink. If it's clear water, if it's muddier water, the chartreuse, bright orange, stuff like that. So anything real bright that'll get their attention is the best way to go. And they can be fairly deep. They can be. Fairly shallow. It really doesn't matter. It just depends on where they're sitting in the water column. So sometimes you have to add split shot or take split shot away from your rig a little bit too. So, but yeah, I think that'll be a good idea for us in the future to do a podcast all about shad. We've got a wealth, you know, the Cape Fear, the Noose, the Roanoke, but even other rivers have shad. The Chowan has shad in it. I've gotten shad in the Tar River. Tar River is a fantastic one. So I hate I forgot that one. That's, That's all right. Drawing one of the better old. ones. <laughs> yeah. It's all right. You draw a blank. But just about all of our major rivers have a spring shad run. And a lot of times you're looking for the dam or a mill dam or something like that off of a creek. That'll stack them up and it can make for a lot of success. With that, let's move on to another one. Let's see here. I think Ben knew about shad. What do you think, Kelsey? I'm, I'm ready to do the podcast. Seemed like he tried to do a mini podcast on that answer. I like That's it. Right. It's good. It's good right. information, though. That's right. It's great. Well, he wanted a podcast. I know. I know. I can't give him the whole podcast. I'll give him a podcast it. There you go. It's perfect. Okay. Since we have two Piedmont biologists here. Easy this, now. This is, well, former. Historically Piedmont biologist. There you go. Spotted bass on Lake Gaston and Ronnie Crafts Lake. It just popped up. Where'd they come from? Mr. Braswell sent me this question. Well, first, they're not true spotted bass. They are Alabama bass, even though I know he calls them spots. And For that's years, fine. even we called them spotted bass. I still call them spots even now. I'm so. guessing there are some spotted bass genes. Oh, see, look they're at that. They're a hodgepodge of the bass. There are a hodgepodge. We've been taking genetics from all of our lakes and rivers in, in North Carolina, and that's one of the interesting things we found out about Gaston is that it is... There are some spotted genes, but it's predominantly Alabama bass. So in the spotted bass world, let's clarify this for a second. Mm-hmm. We kind of jumped ahead. There's spotted bass and then there's Alabama bass. And they're at one point We all thought they were the same. But they look the same. The research mm-hmm. and genetics have shown that they're two different things. And so that's kind of what Kelsey was saying is that the fish in that chain are a little bit of both, right? Yeah, but mostly they are mostly they are Alabama bass. But uh, and if we know anything about Alabama bass, it may mean that eventually, eventually it'll be all Alabama it'll be bass. All Alabama yeah. bass, right? Yeah, that's one of the things they do when they get into a system, and why they're they're such good invasive species is that they they outcompete all the native bass there. Even if they're spotted bass or smallmouth bass, they tend to intermix with them. So they're not native. We've covered that. Right. They're not native. They're from Alabama. But we have spotted bass in some parts of North Carolina. Depends on which way the water flows. Yeah. And they've peacefully coexisted with the smallmouth bass forever. But now they've gotten Alabama bass through one way or another. And I think that's the problem is we don't know how they came here. We have an idea, but we don't know. We can't. (laughs) We can't say for sure how they got here. We but don't know, but we do know. Most likely they were an introduction, not by us, but... Yeah, anglers love them, mm-hmm. and so anglers have moved them. I'll say it. And continue to move and them. And continue so to move So you're going to see them start popping up in a bunch of other reservoirs as well, not just Gaston. Yeah. 
we've seen that they've spread like wildfire and anglers keep moving them around. Please stop moving fish. That's our public service announcement of the podcast. Please stop moving fish. I mean, whether you're dumping an aquarium or dumping right. a live yeah. whale, there is intrinsic risks yes. to our native fish species if that happens. Our agency has historically done it moons ago, long before I walked the earth, and it's had consequences. I mean, we've talked about it on the podcast. It didn't work out when we did it either. No, it didn't work out when we did it either. <laughs> exactly. So the most likely source of where these fish came from is they were introduced by anglers. Yeah. They dumped their live well out. and. Maybe they didn't even know they were turning loose a spot of bass. They may have just thought they were turning loose bass. And it, it may have been done innocently enough. That's right. But it's having some ramifications. That's exactly right. Yeah, that was a really long answer. Sorry. No, Earl. it's good. <laughs> the answer again was, where did they come from? <laughs> we answered that. It yeah. was on the back end, but we answered yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> we don't know, but we think. <laughs> so this is an interesting question that was brought up by one Mr. Larson. And he said... He's been having a lot of success on Lake Jordan. He was asking about live scope and other forward-facing sonars. And he says, what do you think the impacts will be on the fisheries as these technologies get more widespread? Who wants that one? I'll go first, and then you'll correct me. I will. How about that? I've got some forward-facing sonar on yes, my boat. Yes, you do. And I don't. Thoughts. So, obviously, it's going to make anglers better at being aware where fish are don't necessarily know that it makes them better at catching them. I've been in your boat with forward-facing sonar <laughs> and seen fish that, quote-unquote, are right there in front of us, and, quote-unquote, we did not catch them. Then I've been in your boat with forward-facing sonar, and there were fish right in front. Well, let me rephrase that. There were fish all around us. Yeah, this was the same day. Same day. And those fish did bite. Obviously, I think it helps you realize where they are that you're not fishing over spots that don't have fish. So I think it, that's the helpful part of it. But I don't necessarily, if they're not feeding and you don't know what you're doing, which is... Yeah, you still got to make them bite. You still got to make them bite, which is part of my problem is I don't know what I'm doing. I just have friends that do. And so that's the one thing that I'm not sure how much of an effect. Now, I've seen a couple of scientific literature reports where biologists have actually looked at this and one that comes to my mind right off the top of my head, should have been more prepared, but was on crappy because crappy are schooling fish. I know you've caught fish, crappy fishing, using forward-facing sonar, and it's been successful. In freshwater, probably crappy fishing is maybe one of the... Is the one that everybody's probably going to be the most scared about. Right. But, you know, that report showed that basically what they've learned is that forward-facing sonar might not be all that, not necessarily beneficial, but it might not have the detrimental effect that everybody thinks it's going to have. I don't know. It's so new. I mean, I think time will tell, you know, how good the, son well, the sonar is great, but how good fishermen will be able to utilize it to catch those fish once they see them. Right. I don't know. Jury's out for me. So for me, yes. If you know fish are there and they're not feeding fish, you're going to spend a lot more time trying to catch those fish than if you couldn't see them and they weren't biting. So that was the one thing that my son Jonah said when we were on your boat the other day. He's like, that thing's aggravating. And I was like, why do you say that? He's like, because <laughs> we probably stayed in places that we wouldn't normally stay. You know, if we'd have fished for 30 minutes and didn't catch anything, we'd have left and gone somewhere else if we had been in your boat. But we were in Ben's boat and we could see those fish. We were saying, oh, we should be able to catch those fish. They're going to turn on. We're going to catch those fish. And maybe you stay on fish longer, even though they don't bite. I mean, that's part of so, it, too. 
I'd caught fish there before. I know. We would have fished there about the same amount of time, no matter what. Well, because I had to caught some big that's fish from there. the eyes of a fifteen-year-old. Right. So you know, I but mean, no, I don't think he's wrong well, because there's been either. other times where I've stayed places because I'm like, I can see them, but I can't catch them. What are you doing to me? <laughs> but what I really think it'll matter, and I think the concern, and I've had this question a couple of times. The concern is, well, people are going to catch so many fish that it's going to degrade the fishery. And that's why we do these fish surveys. And that's why we are out there surveying the fish populations, making sure that fish populations are healthy and they're growing and they're reproducing in the way that's representative of the species. So if that's a change, we'll have to change the regulations. Yeah. Now, granted, with crappy, it's probably not going to be an issue because their reproductive history is so fruitful. But let's say bass or striped bass or hybrids or something along those lines. If if a fishery is getting overexploited, it doesn't matter how it's or why it's getting overexploited. We'll have to change the rules so that we have a healthy population. It's like I mean, like everything, we have to adjust based on what's going on around us, mm-hmm. whether it's environmental or whether humans have gotten better at catching something. Yeah, I mean, side scan was a good tool. Yep, regular depth finders are a good tool. There's been an evolution over time. And who knows how the technology will change even more in the future. It is like a video game, though. So it does give you an idea of what's going on under the water. And we as anglers have been wondering that for years. Yeah, so, yeah that's right. I think we need to get some of that on our boats. We have some. And they're a hugely beneficial research tool just as well. Might put that on the budget for next year. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> this has been great. I've enjoyed it. I've probably talked way too much, and I apologize for that. But We probably could talk a lot more. I'm ready to go hybrid fishing. A lot longer. Yeah. Yeah, if I could encourage, find a lake that's got hybrids, go out there, try to catch them. They're a lot of fun. They will definitely pull your line. They're very strong. Even at small sizes, they're still pretty strong. So they're fun to catch. Thanks, Kelsey, for being here. We really enjoyed it. Yeah. No, this was awesome. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you. Y'all have a great day. Thank you for listening to the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission's podcast, Better Fishing with Two Ball Biologists. For more information, please visit ncwildlife.org or email us at twoballedbiologist at ncwildlife.org.